So for those of you who may not be on the um, email train, I think most of you are, but I sent out an email yesterday morning, and um, what I said was we, we let the sermon text um, drive the sermon. So we don't pick and choose. Generally, we are in a book of the Bible. Right now, we're in the entire Bible, and we're going through a storyline. And what I said because of that is if I'm preaching on, uh, if I'm preaching on Adam and Eve, then like a garden and some fig leaves better be in the story. If I'm preaching on uh, Noah and the ark, then guess what? A big boat better show up in the sermon. If I'm preaching on David and Goliath, then a, a stone, a sling, and a dead giant better show up in the text. And so as you read today's text, you can kind of guess at what the subject matter may be. And I say all of that to say that I recognize that there may be some children in the room, and we're basically doing family worship. And later on, especially as we join live stream, I, w- I just want to make that announcement so that, so that you don't have to have a conversation like I had to have, a untimely conversation with your child about uh, the birds and the bees that you weren't prepared for. And so it wasn't a preacher that outed, outed us. It was actually a text that I sent to my wife that was perfectly um, appropriate for my wife, but perfectly inappropriate for my daughter who happened to be holding her phone. And so if you need tips... After this gathering and answering questions, you can hit me up on email, and I will send you uh, those tips. Man, what a heavy text. And yet, what I want us to do is um, I want to get to the gospel as quickly as we can to remind us that Jesus has come for sinners like King David and sinners like you and me. And so before we dive in, let's pray. Jesus, as uh, Robert... Murray McShane rightly said, for every one look at self, may we take 10 looks to you. Jesus, may we look at ourselves. I mean, that's the point of the text. Godly people fall into sin. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were born and made in in iniquity, not in innocence, but in iniquity. Under the curse of Adam, and we have by, by nature and also by choice, we have sinned and we have transgressed against you, our holy God. Even for us as believers and Christians, we can and we do find ourselves wrapped up in, in sin and held again by its evil snares. And so we look to you, Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who has come to rescue and to save us and to, and to make us new. How, what a glorious song it was that we got to sing that you, that, that we're completely done. That death no longer holds its sting, that you're making us new. What a joy it is to proclaim that, Lord. Lord, be near to us as we think about these things in this story. May it be a warning, may it guard us. In your name we pray, amen. I wanna give for you um, four four statements that will help guide us through uh, this sermon today. And so I know that some of you maybe brought your notebook and you used to take notes on the back of the skinny, but COVID, we can't do that. And so nevertheless, if you wanna type them into your phone, you can just try not to get distracted. And you know, sometimes you're typing notes. Next thing you know, you're checking Facebook, you're on Twitter, you're checking the news. And so try not to do those things. But if you wanna take notes or possibly just take a picture of this for later, I think it will be helpful for you to even think about in the future, but here's the four truths that will help guard us, and I will spend about 15 minutes on each truth. 
No, I won't. I'll spend less than that. So we got to get rocking and rolling. Here's the first one. The first one is this, is guard yourself. That's the action that you need to take is to guard yourself because godly people can fall into sin. And I don't even like maybe the language of fall. I wish I would have changed that. And it acts as if we just stumble into it. But what you're going to see even with the life of David, and if we had more time, we could look at that, is there were several warning signs in David's life. And we'll look at that a little bit today. So it's not just fall like, oh, I didn't see that there. I fell down the steps. But oftentimes we, we, we're, we're tempted. We're all tempted. Even godly people are tempted towards heinous sin. That's the point. Number two, confess. Confess your sins. What do you do when you sin? Well, here's what you do. You confess your sins. Why? Because you can be forgiven. We serve a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve, but who offers forgiveness, and we'll see that. Number three, be warned. Be warned because sin always carries consequences. There's always consequences to our sin. And lastly, take heart, be encouraged because Jesus is our sinless savior. We'll take the first one. Guard yourself because godly people can fall into sin. Remember the Bible has declared David to be a man after God's own heart. It's the only person in the entire Bible that this phrase is used for David. David didn't claim that about himself. The prophet Samuel didn't even claim that about David after knowing David and inspecting his heart. But God sovereignly and graciously has declared that over David, that God has said that David, knowing his heart, knowing everything about him, David is a man after my own heart. So let that like be the framework as we dive into the story. And so if you want to follow along in the Bible, we're going to unpack some of the verses and and we'll just kind of take it chunk by chunk by chunk as we often do in the narrative sections. And so the first chunk, let's just look at the the first verse. 2 Samuel chapter 11, the first verse says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at home. Now, I don't know what you do in the springtime, Maybe you put out tulip bulbs, right? Maybe you plant some tomatoes. Maybe you go try to catch the bass while they're on the nest. I don't know what you may do in the springtime, but evidently in this time, in the spring, one of the things that would happen is the kings would go to war. And so that's what we have is we have the kings are going to war, but notice where David is. David decided all of the sudden that he's not going to war. This isn't because David has turned, suddenly turned pacifist. In fact, he's sending Joab. He's sending, it says here, even his servants and all of Israel. That means every able-bodied man has been enlisted and called into the army and sent into the battle, but their king, their, their, their leader has decided not to go. Even though he should be going, calling the shots, commanding his army, but yet what it says here is David didn't go. Now, you'll remember we talked about the, one of the main points of the story of David and Goliath is God is declaring and showing David to be a warrior king. So by God's design, by God's calling, 
by God's equipping, David is a, he's been a general in the army. He's a military, uh, a, a military strategist. He's a military genius. He is all these things. But now David, in this season of his life, David isn't the warrior king, but David is the relaxer king. And he's staying at home in the palace in Jerusalem. It's as if David has forgotten his calling. He's forgotten his mission. He's forgotten his purpose. And I say that because for a lot of people, that's where temptation begins. It begins when their lives lack purpose, when they're bored, when they're bored. The Puritans called it, there was the sin or the spiritual condition of acedia. It's A-C-E-D-I-A, acedia. And what acedia is, is spiritual or mental sloth, an apathy of the soul. And it seems as if David may be caught up in that. And that's true for us as well. That sometimes there's the, the allurement of sin, that sin promises fulfillment. It promises distraction. It promises excitement. It promises attention. It promises adventure. And it's something because they're in this state that they desperately, they desperately crave, especially sin of this flavor. Verse number two, it happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the house. He saw from the roof a beautiful, uh, a beautiful, he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now remember, David's supposed to be going off to war, but instead of going off to war, what's he doing? He's laying on his couch. He just woke up. It doesn't say that it's late in the evening. It doesn't say that it's in the middle of the night. In fact, it says it's, uh, what is it? The text says here that it is in the afternoon, correct? It's late one afternoon. What this means is David just got up from a nap. That's what it means. It's late one afternoon. David just got up from a nap. He's walking around on the rooftop, which means David is tired. He's tired. He's bored. He's probably in this spiritual state where he's lacking purpose of his life. And it's a recipe for disaster. He goes on this walk and he sees a woman bathing. And the Bible says it generally doesn't rate women. But here the Bible says that Bathsheba was a woman who was very beautiful. And what that means in the Hebrew is it means is that she was very beautiful. That's what it means. It means that she was exceedingly beautiful with great emphasis and force and strength on the word of beautiful. She's taking a bath on her roof. Now, some of you may go like, why is she taking a bath on the roof? So let me ask you, have you ever seen a bathing woman on a rooftop? I have. Bunches of times in Haiti. That in Haiti, it's culturally appropriate and they do it often is they go up to the roof. It's a place of privacy and they will take a, they'll take a bath, not in a shower, but they'll, they'll take a bath. And evidently I would say in this time and in this culture, many people would move up onto the rooftops of the evening. A lot of us guys who have been to Haiti, we've, we've seen that, you know why? Because we were up on the rooftops as well because there's a breeze up there and it's cool up there and we'd be unpacking the day and talking. And then all of a sudden one of the guys would say, oops, there's a girl over there taking a shower or taking a bath and it would be two rooftops over where this is occurring. And this is kind of what's happening. In this time, rooftops were actually kind of like a, a place of privacy, yet they weren't all that private. And yet from David's vantage point, he has a choice. He can either, he can either look away 
or he could secretly look. And a man of respectability would have looked away. What we would encourage each other to do on the rooftop in Haiti is say, hey, look, don't look, don't look, don't look. Okay, we're not looking. And the truth is, is what this does also is this, this makes David human. It brings the story at home to us as well. Because the truth may be is we may not be tempted to watch in our culture, in our culture in America, I've never seen a person taking a bath on their rooftop, right? I, I just can't imagine that. You and I can't imagine that. Most of you said no. But feeling the temptation to either we have a choice, either to look away or to fulfill the role of to secretly watch, to be a watcher, to be a viewer, to watch and to look for something exciting, something to break up the monotony of life. Like we are tempted constantly to do that, are we not? Instagram, right? Um, maybe Facebook, Twitter, Tinder, Snapchat, just something to break up the monotony, to take the role of a viewer. Certainly it's true in pornography as we scroll. It's the same temptation. We know that we should look away and yet we can also though, we can, we can hide and we can watch and we can be a viewer and that's what David does. And like all sin, it begins in the heart. It begins in the inside of us with a desire. And then when that desire, as James says, is fulfilled, it gives birth to sin and sin ultimately gives birth to destruction. And that's what we see. Verse number three, and David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, so this is a person that comes back and look at the question they said, is not, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now this is really important here. This should have been a shot across David's bow. This should have been a slap to the face to wake him up here. That what the author is doing in the story as he's telling it is what he's basically saying here. He's subtly pointing out that this is someone's daughter and this is someone's wife. That oftentimes, sin in general, but especially when it gets to sexual sin, that it objectifies a person. It dehumanizes the person. It is oftentimes, if not always, sin when it's done to another human, is first a sin against the Imago Dei. Like this starts off as a sin against the very image bearer that she is, that she has been created in the image of God, meaning she is worthy of dignity and she's worthy of honor. She's not for you to objectify. She is someone's, as we see here, she is someone's daughter. She's someone's mother. She's someone's wife or future wife, or even we could say husband or son or father. That oftentimes when we're flirting with disaster and sin in this area, we need to recognize that and humanize it, that that person you're flirting with is somebody's mommy or their daddy. And sin always has consequences as we'll see later on. Verse number four, so David sent messengers and then look what he did, he took her. And she came to him and they laid with her. Now, I've always had, like you have categories of sin in your mind and in your heart when you're, dealing with, when you're dealing with sin, when you're reading the Bible, and even when you're dealing with people, there's categories we put sin in. And for me, I always kind of rightly put this in the category of sexual immorality. I put it in the category of adultery. I mean, both are married here. And so I put it in that category, but 
Maybe sometime last year or a couple years ago with, during the whole Me Too movement as it was coming out and what you saw was you saw people of power preying on people of lesser power, people who couldn't say no, who would lose their job. That created a new category for the story for me. That what I believe what you have here, the category would be non-consensual sex or there's another word for that that I'm not gonna say because it's young children in the room. That's the category that fits in, actually. That David is a man in, in a position of power. He's the king for crying out loud. That Bathsheba could not have said no. Bathsheba wasn't in love. Don't read any of that into it, even though they get married later. I do not believe she was in love with David. We see that because she mourns the death of her husband. But nevertheless, David does it. He crosses that line and This is what the text says. Now, she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Gosh, we could say a ton, even about that. It means that she's following the Levitical law. It means this woman was a God-fearing, God-loving woman who wanted to honor the Lord with her life. And then it says, then she returned to her house. So David has been with her. He has then, um, he's laid with her. He has then sent her home. And I'm sure in David's mind, it was like the flesh was probably subdued to some level. He was finished. It was over. He sent her home. He's kind of got it out of his mind, out of his heart. Only a couple of days, maybe a month later, David gets a text from her with just two words. I'm pregnant. And now David has another issue at mind. Verse number five, and the woman conceived and she sent and she told David, I am pregnant. And now at this point, David starts a pretty complicated and convoluted cover-up. He sends word to Joab, his, office, his army commander, and he says, have Uriah come home. I'd like for him to brief me on the war. Now, let me make as, as a side note this mention. Uriah isn't just some, some dude in the army. I mean, he is that, but he's more than that. The Bible has already described Uriah as one of David's mighty men. And what if David's mighty men would have been a guy that David had picked? It would have been a person who would have fought, probably fought with David whenever David was on the run from King Saul. Like the point, look at look even, Uriah and Bathsheba live in close proximity to the palace. Close enough that from the rooftop, David can spot this bathing woman on the rooftop. That I think what all of that is indicating is Uriah wasn't just some guy, but Uriah was a friend. He was a friend. And now the cover-up begins. And let me just say this, that's the natural tendency with sin. It's to cover it up. It's to smother it. It's to put it, sweep it under the rug, to put it out of sight, out of mind. We saw that all the way back in Genesis with Adam and Eve. What do they do when they sin? They, they hide from God, they sow fig leaves, they're trying to cover up, they're trying to make a covering, hide the, the consequences, hide the truth, hide what they've done. That's what sin does, it exposes us and gives us a desire to cover it up. It's called sin management and that's what we do. And so David does that with three different plots, three different plans, each one of them growing in sin and growing in convolution. Plan A, he brings Uriah home. As, as he comes home, he meets with David. They talk shop, they talk about war. And then David says, Uriah, why don't you go home and spend some time at home? Have a night of rest, is what he says. Go back and sleep in your own bed. But uh, Uriah refused to, to do this. 
Uriah is a principled man and refuses to go back home. He refuses to sleep in his own bed. He refuses to be with his own wife. In fact, he sleeps in the doorway. Verse number 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and the Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That means they've got homes. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord, they're camping out, my men, my boys, the army, they're camping out in open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Which this proves to us is Uriah is a better man than David. Uriah is a principled man, a man of integrity, an honorable man. And even in this story, he's a better man than David. So plan B, that doesn't work. So plan B, he gets, David, he gets Uriah drunk. He tells Uriah, Uriah, stay an extra day in Jerusalem. And then verse 13, and David invited him and he ate in the presence and he drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house at Uriah. And then so plan C is birthed. He has Uriah. And let me also make mention and others killed. Verse number 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Think about that. Think about how hardened you would have to be. He's writing orders for his friend's death and he's making his friend carry his, his death sentence to Joab. In the letter, he wrote this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and they fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people and some of the servants of David among the people fell. That means they died. It didn't stumble, they died. And Uriah the Hittite also died. That David and Bathsheba and Uriah certainly are involved in this, but now it's spread. Other soldiers have died. There's other homes in Jerusalem there where there's mourning take place where, where, a, where a son has died or a dad has died in battle that day because sin can't be contained. And it almost always affects and hurts other innocent people. That's what's happening here. After Uriah dies, David takes Bathsheba for his wife and he, he takes her into his house she bears the child and everybody assumes that she got pregnant on their honeymoon and David's brushed this whole thing under the rug and it's all behind him, right? That's what you think. That's what David wants here. Sin management, that's what it does, but not hardly. Second Samuel chapter 11, it ends with this chilling verse. Verse number 27, here's the words. But that thing that David had done, it displeased the Lord. Let's just marinate that in that for a second. Let's just sit and think about that. Have you read the Psalms? Maybe not all of them, but have you read the Psalms? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie, he, he leads me to green pastures. He makes me lie down by the still waters. Who wrote that? King David. Think about other Psalms that may come to your mind and more than likely, David penned those psalms. He wrote those songs. He, he wrote them as a young man, most of them. Most of the psalms that we read in the psalms were psalms written by David that were, that were written by him 
at a young age, as a young man, a man in his, in his teens or in his 20s or in his 30s. And now what we have is you have David and he's much older. Maybe as old as 45 or 50 or 55. And I say that to just remind you what I said in the beginning, guard yourself. Andy Lawrence, guard yourself. Guard yourself. Because what was said, what God said to, to Cain in the story of Cain and Abel was still true. That sin crouches at the door and it would love nothing more than to overtake you. And that's what's happened here. David has been overtaken. Listen, never, ever, ever, when you read this story or other stories in the Bible, or when you hear something on the news or you hear about another brother or sister in the church or you hear of someone outside of the church, never, ever, ever say, Lord, I would never. I would never do that because you don't know how insidious sin is. You don't know how temptation works. Everyone is capable. There isn't a sin out there that I'm not capable of committing. And we must walk with that level of humility. Think about Galatians 6.1, the warning. If there's a brother who's caught in transgression, uh, David, uh, Paul writes and says, you who are spiritual. So you're a, a spiritual person. You've grown in spiritual maturity. You're godly says, you go and you restore that brother. And you do it with a, with a spirit of kindness and humility and weakness. And then there's this word of warning. And, be, and keep careful watch on yourself, lest you too are tempted. It's a subtle and yet beautiful warning that we need to know. We need to always stand guard. Next, we see confess your sins because you can be forgiven. That's the good news. Good grief, that's the good news that some time has transpired between 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, here's how I know that. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the boy has been born. He's now a little boy that's the product of David and Bathsheba. And back in those days, um, it was about nine months from the time a woman conceived till she gave birth. You know, I read that in a commentary somewhere, a Hebrew commentary. But so some time has transpired. Some months have gone on. And then um, the prophet Nathan comes to David. David's just living life. He's gone back to work. He's doing what he does. He's, he's sitting in the seat of a, as a lawgiver, as a, as a judge, if you will, listening to cases, making decisions. That's what, he's, that's what he's doing. He's judging and ruling the people. And the prophet Nathan comes to David with this story. Chapter 12, verse number one. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, Nathan the prophet. And he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, ewe lamb, right? Which he had brought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in its arms. That's why it's called ewe, ewe. It's eaten out of its cup. That's pretty funny. My grandfather would be so proud of me. I just wrote that. It just came to me. And I'll tweet that later. But that is weird, right? It was like a daughter to him. It was a pet. Um, 
It was a member of his family. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. And look, verse number five, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And one of the greatest application lines ever to be written, ever to be spoken in any sermon. You ever walked away and felt like, man, I felt like the preacher was talking right at me. Like that's what happens right here. Nathan said to David, David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, now deceased pastor and preacher, he said this, that when Christians sin, they're not sinning against the law, but they're sinning against the love of a father. And that's what God is saying through the prophet Nathan to David. David, have I, have I not been a good dad to you? Have I not provided for you? Have I not given to you? Have I not blessed you? Have I not taken care of you? That when we, and I know David, Christian, when we as the people of God, when we sin, we're not just transgressing against a law or command that's generic, that's out there. But we're transgressing against the love of a father who's provided for us, who has taken care of us. And yet, he says, if there was anything else you wanted or anything else you needed, David, all you had to do was ask. And yet you despise the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. Oh, Lord, guard us. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord, has also, the, the Lord also has put away your sin so that you shall not die. Let me say this, like David thought it was all under wraps and thought it was all uncovered. He had it all locked in, locked tight, but look at what God has done since a prophetic word to Nathan. He's outed him. And let me just say this, it is a gracious thing when God outs us in our sin on this side of death. It is a very gracious thing when God picks the lock and bursts open, as painful as it may, bursts open the, the, the chasm, bursts open the, the box that is our sinful lifestyle, that is our sin. Here's why it's a gracious thing, because it gives us opportunity to repent. See, the truth is sooner or later, God will, God will uh, burst open that. Sooner or later, you in your hidden sin, you will be outed in it. Sooner or later, it's going to come. That's what light does. 
Jesus is the light. And what light does is it exposes things. And sooner or later, Jesus will expose you in your sin. You may try to cover it up with all sorts of coverings, with all sorts of attraction, with fig leaves, with all of these things. And all of those things that we can muster up are insufficient coverings. Ultimately, we will be outed. Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes to whom we must give account. Sooner or later, reckoning day comes. If God doesn't out you, maybe, he's, maybe, maybe God is outing you right now through the power of his spirit, even right now. David repents. We see it in this text. We see it throughout the Psalms, Psalm 51. It's birthed from this. It's birthed from this. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. Blot this out. Cleanse me with your hyssop. Don't take the spirit, uh, your, your spirit of your, the joy of your salvation from me. Give it back to me. Psalm 32 that I believe we read earlier. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. No doubt it's No doubt this is touched by, that psalm is touched by this event, Psalm 38, and we could go on. And the truth is David is forgiven, David is cleansed, and David is restored, and David will have to shoulder up the consequences of his sin. Be warned, because sin always carries consequences. When I was a youth pastor, I remember one time, there was a couple times actually that I that I would teach on this very thing. I would teach on the consequences of sin because for some reason, especially for young men, it's as if we think there are no consequences to sin. And I remember I would hang poster board up and have people unroll it to say consequences. And we'd get up and say, there is always consequences to sin. The same thing is true here in David's life. In fact, chapter 11 is going to mark a turning point It'll, it'll, there'll, there'll be upticks, small upticks, but really what chapter 11 becomes is the spiral of Israel. The golden era will be over, short-lived because of David's sin. That Israel and David and David's family will never be the same. This newborn child that Bathsheba has born, he will die. King David's family will start, look, it will start looking like the Corleone family rather than the royal godly family that it began. One of his sons will forcibly take his half-sister in the palace and then vengeance will be taken by another son by the name of Absalom and he will kill him. Then Absalom will lead a rebellion against David and David will be kicked out of Jerusalem, go on the run, just like he did with King Saul. Solomon will be the next king. Solomon will get there next week. He will be a wise man, the wisest man to ever live. But later on in his life, he will become a wise fool. Solomon will take 700 700 wives and 300 concubines, some of which will be foreign wives who will ultimately turn Solomon's heart away from the Lord. The sins of the father, the sins of the parents are visited. That's of truth. They're visited upon the children. And how are they visited? It's oftentimes our children will struggle with the same sins we struggle. Only oftentimes they will get ratcheted up. I've seen this in my own family. And the truth is, is that we are to be warned. And let me just say this in two ways. Let me say this warning comes in two ways. First of all, be warned that shouldering and sheltering to the consequences of sin does not mean that you are not forgiven. You can be forgiven for your sin. You just can't unsin sin. Be warned in that. 
Know that it doesn't mean just because you may be sheltering and, and, and standing and shouldering under the consequences of your sin, it doesn't mean that you're not forgiven. You just can't unsin sin. And what sin is like, is sin is like a hand grenade that you pull the pin on and let go of the handle and the mug explodes. And when it explodes, it throws shrapnel and does damage everywhere and you can't contain it. Innocent people, innocent bystanders get blown to bits and there's carnage everywhere. And all you can do is start, get a broom and start sweeping it up. Get some Band-Aids and some first aid kits and start patching up the people that you've, that you've hurt and you've destroyed by your sin, but sin is uncontrollable. And so be warned, be warned on that side of the sin, be warned on this side of the sin as well. That what sin, what, what the warning of the consequences of sin should do is it should work to guard us. It should be like a wall. We should sit and we should think about what the consequences of sin is like. Years ago, I used to listen to a, a preacher a lot because I'd be driving to school or driving to work and Chuck Swindoll, Insights for Living would come on. And years ago, I remember Chuck Swindoll saying that whenever he traveled uh, different places, would stay in hotels, that Chuck Swindoll said he took out a piece of paper and he carried this piece of paper with him. And on that piece of paper was the consequences is if he would commit adultery. He's like, I needed to think through those things. I need to be reminded of those things. And I've made a similar list. I had never really jotted it down, but mentally I made a similar list of what would the consequences be if I was to fall into the sin of adultery? If I was to have an affair on my wife, what would happen? And here's what the list looks like. It looks like this, as I would cause untold hurt to Luann, my bride, the wife of my youth. And I would have to endure the loss of her respect and her trust. And I could even likely forfeit my marriage to her. I would cause deep hurt and confusion in Kennedy and Grayson and Severa, who may never understand why I traded them for a thrill. At this point in their lives, my relationship with them would never be the same. They would never look at me the same way. I would bring shame on my parents. And heartbreakingly, heartbreakingly, I would even tarnish the reputation begun by my now deceased grandparents. I would bring shame and endless judgment on the woman who I commit this sinful act with. Because of my somewhat public position, she would never be looked at again in the same light. I would cause shame and I would cause hurt to you. My fourth love, my church family. I would give fodder to an unbelieving world I would become another statistic, another, an, another example of hypocrisy that would allow them to justify their anger and their unbelief toward God. And most importantly, I would grieve my Lord and Savior. And one day I would have to look him in the face and explain why. Why after everything that he's given to me, after all the beauty and the goodness that he's put into my life, why I had to do and be something else. Sin wrecks everything. And we need to be warned of that. We need to know that. Sin wrecks everything. But lastly, we take heart because Jesus is our sinless savior. 
that David, although he will be the best king that Israel will ever know, he is a sinful king. And in this story, it leaves us with a longing for a sinless king. And Jesus is that sinless king. Jesus is both our sinless king and our sinless savior. And as the sinless savior, Jesus gives to us a real covering for our sins. There is this picture throughout the Bible of our desire, as I said, for our sins to be covered. You see it with Adam and Eve and you see it with Adam and Eve longing for their, their nakedness to be covered. They're longing for their exposure to be undone. And so they make for themselves fig leaves. But then what God does when he shows up is God gives them a better covering. He kills an innocent animal. And from the animal, he makes some leather, right? He makes some kind of covering, some, some mink coat, wool coat, whatever, and gives it to them to wear. And this becomes a picture throughout the Bible of God providing a covering that covers us. We see it with the priestly garments in, um, in, in the Old Testament, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We see it throughout. We see it again, even when we get to New Testament. As the Apostle Paul tells us to put on Christ. He even talks about it. We take off the old clothes that are stained by sin and we put something else new. We put something else on that covers us. And what we put on is for those of us who are in this room, because this is all of us who have sinned and transgressed the Lord. First of all, is we put on Jesus. We put on his blood. We put on his death. That our sins can be forgiven because Christ has died in our place. The consequences, the wages for sin is death. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. Jesus is dying in our place that our sins are placed upon Christ. They're accredited and counted to Christ. And Christ dies and he's put into a tomb, but he doesn't stay there. Jesus comes out victoriously. And in the same way, our sins, when we believe in Christ, our sins are transferred by faith to Christ and they're placed into Christ's grave. And when Christ is resurrected from the dead, guess what? You and I are resurrected from the dead. We find our forgiveness because of the shed blood of Christ. We don't find our forgiveness because of the good works that we do that somehow magically erase that. We don't find our, we don't find our forgiveness not even based upon even our own contrition of heart, although that's key. That's what repentance begins with, a contrition of heart. But we don't find our forgiveness based upon a contrition of heart. Ultimately, we find our forgiveness based upon the subjective work no, the objective work of Christ on the cross. That's where we find our forgiveness. And Christ clothes us in his blood. I know that sounds icky. He clothes us, he washes us, he renews us, he makes us new. And second, Christ clothes us in his righteousness. What we mean by righteousness there is the moral perfection of Christ is accounted and accredited to you that all of these coverings and all of these images in one day will be a reality when you and I, when we stand before Christ and we're given a robe, we're given a new robe, a white robe. Why is it white? Because white is a sign of purity and because of Christ's moral purity, because Christ's perfection. It's not something you've earned. It's something you've received as a, as, as God's, a picture of God's grace and his love for you, that you and I, we will put that on, but it's something that you and I wear now. Our sins and our transgressions are forgiven and we wear the perfect robe of Christ. It's given to us, accounted to us who inward believe. So again, I say to you, in the words of Robert Murray McShane, for every one look at self and every one look at sin, take 
10 looks at Christ and what Christ has done for you and how Christ forgives you and clothes you with his own and clothes you in his righteousness. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that for you, with you, there's forgiveness of sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you wash us with the washing of regeneration and renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit, Titus 3. And I pray in this time, as we think about our lives, as we look inwardly as we should, that may we look also upward at you. And as we remember whose we are, as we remember our calling and remember our purpose, that we are holy unto the Lord. That's our purpose. That's our calling. As we're to be holy unto the Lord, we belong to you. We are yours. And as we remember that, Lord, and as we think about our own sin-stained flesh, may you wash us. Watch us and make us new. Renew us in the power of the Spirit. May this be a sanctifying time for us. May this be a time of confession. In your name we pray, amen.